That's one of the things that I think makes this era really qualitatively different from previous eras of you know, big corporate power. Just the extent to which these companies are able to compile these just exhaustive dossiers on individuals, on businesses, and are able to use that information to really cement their dominance. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week I'm speaking with Katie Wilson. Katie is a columnist here at Crosscut whose weekly contributions focus on the economy. Often, lately, Katie's writing about the recession. But in the last couple of months, she's set that aside to focus on something else. Antitrust. Antitrust? <laughs> I never know how to say it. So she's been writing about antitrust and... As a concept, I think antitrust is pretty simple, right? Companies who get too big and abuse their powers to unfairly eliminate competition and maybe drive up prices must be brought to heel, either through a breakup or through some regime of regulation or something like that. Of course, it is not so simple, and the history of trust busting has been uneven at best. Still, over the years, the government has succeeded in exerting its will on a number of companies, from big oil to big railroads to big steel. Lately, though, the conversation around antitrust in the U.S. has focused on another behemoth industry, big tech, in particular on Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. And just in the last few weeks, that conversation has begun to turn into action. Earlier this fall, there was an antitrust lawsuit brought against Google. And then last month, European Union regulators filed antitrust charges against Amazon. Then just this last week, Facebook was served with antitrust lawsuits from the Federal Trade Commission and attorney generals from 46 states, all seeking to force the company to sell off a couple of its apps, Instagram and WhatsApp. So in the midst of all this, Katie has been delving deep into the history of antitrust to make sense of what looks to be a new era of trust busting. She's written a six-part series that explores how we got here. I should mention here that in addition to her columnist gig at Crosscut, Katie works for the Transit Riders Union, which is a member of a coalition that opposes Amazon on many issues, including antitrust. I'm saying it different every single time. Antitrust. <laughs> What I love about Katie's work, though, um, and this goes for pretty much everything she writes about, is really how dispassionate she is. It's good writing. It's, it's enjoyable to read. But it isn't always or really that often advocacy. Um, really, in this collection, she's created a guide to understanding the relationship between antitrust and the shape of our reality. In the first installment of the series, she writes... It's easy to agree that big tech has too much power, but the question of what exactly to do about it is a complex one, wrapped up with conceptual and ideological assumptions about markets, competition, efficiency and innovation, and inseparable from larger questions of what kind of society and economy we believe to be possible or desirable. Katie, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Thank you. It's great to be here, Mark. So... The idea of antitrust has changed. It's tempting to think that uh, this particular moment right now, that the companies that we're seeing you know, antitrust applied to 
are uniquely complex, and therefore that uh, the application of antitrust to these companies is also complex. But as you laid out in your series, antitrust has always been a very complex arrangement from the very beginning and confusing. Why is, why is antitrust confusing? If you look at kind of what happened during the 19th century, basically this is the era of capitalism is kind of off to the races. And as industry was growing up and you had this kind of nascent capitalist class, the bourgeoisie that was gaining political power in Europe and the old feudal and ecclesiastical kind of laws and you know mores were kind of falling away, you had the rise of this kind of free market ideology. So although there had been markets all through the Middle Ages, they were embedded in these larger kind of social structures. Mm. And so in the 19th century, you had the rise of this idea that leave it all to the market. You know, people buying and selling to whom they wish will result in uh, kind of prices that are fair and prosperity that will just be great for everyone and government should just kind of stay out of the way as much as possible. But at the same time, you have this situation where industry is growing and you have this new systems of factory production. And for the first time, there's really advantages to scale, to large scale industry. You know, you have industries growing up where in order to get a start, you need a lot of capital and, you know, large uh, factories can produce way more products more efficiently, more cheaply than small handicraft production. And so over the course of the 19th century, you have this kind of consolidation of capital where companies are growing larger and the bigger ones are beating out the smaller ones. And you kind of have this natural progression where you know, monopolies are forming essentially out of this process of free competition. And so it's a little, you know, these two trends together, you have the situation where kind of the free market is being held up as this ideal, but at the same time, the workings of the free market is kind of undermining the free market and leading to a situation where you don't have competition, where you have essentially economic autocracy, where you have one or a few companies that are dominating these industries. And so I think conceptually, that's part of the tension that's kind of lies at the heart of antitrust. And it's really hard because you look at the kind of behaviors that these trusts and monopolies are engaging in. And a lot of times it's kind of normal behavior. It's like, well, you're lowering your prices to squash the competition um, or you're buying out smaller companies, you're merging with other companies. And these are normal things that that companies do to gain a competitive advantage. And so the question arises, how, how big is too big, right? When does winning the game of of competition and capitalism turn into destroying the game. And so Mm. antitrust kind of has the job of drawing these lines between legal behavior and illegal behavior where it's not clear exactly where that line should be drawn. And so it's this kind of inevitably contested territory where corporations that are on the receiving end of antitrust lawsuits kind of feel like they're being punished for being good at capitalism. Hmm. And so, and and as you write, you know the 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 outcome of this era of you know the the merging of of um, these factors is that the the government realized that it had to do something, and so the was it the Sherman Antitrust Act uh, of 1890, I think it was, that is put into place. Uh, it's not super effective until um, 
the the turn of the century, and then you write at great length about the election of 1912, which I thought was a really、um, good vector through which we can try to understand the different ways that people think about antitrust and the marketplace, right? Because you kind of had each candidate had a different take. Everybody agreed that the companies had grown too large. I mean, this is. Feels very, very similar to what's happening right now. Everybody agreed that the companies had grown too large, and you had an election where you had、um, each candidate had a different approach to it. And really, it sets the stage for the entire 20th century's、uh, approach to government intervention in the marketplace. So, can you tell us about the election of 1912 and what those choices were, and what direction America decided to go? Sure. Yeah. So the election of 1912,、um, antitrust was kind of the big issue of the election, and it was a kind of unique election in that there were four major serious candidates. Right. So right. there was William Howard Taft, who was the Republican incumbent. There was Theodore Roosevelt, who had already served two terms, and then there was、uh, Woodrow Wilson, who ran as the Democrat, and then Eugene Debs, who who ran as, for the Socialist Party. And、uh, each candidate had kind of their own perspective on what should be done about the trusts. You know, Theodore Roosevelt, when he was in office、uh, from I think it was 1901 to 1909. Um, under his administration, the Sherman Antitrust Act had been used for the first time, really effectively, in breaking up some of the big trusts.、Um, in, in his tenure, he filed, or his administration filed, I think over forty antitrust lawsuits.、Um, and then William Howard Taft, who succeeded him, was even more active and, and filed, I think, over seventy lawsuits in in his term.、Um, and this is all in the run up to to 1912. But Roosevelt kind of had a little bit of a change of heart. He came to believe that breaking the trusts apart into smaller companies was not really solving the problem. So he has the kind of reputation of the trustbuster. But for example, by the time Standard Oil was finally broken up, that was a lawsuit that was initiated under his presidency. But I believe Standard Oil wasn't broken up until like. 1910 or 1911,、um, and by that time he thought it was a bad move, and he kind of said, "Is it really any better to have 40 small Standard Oils running around, you know, controlled in the same manner、um, than than to have one?"、Mm-hmm. Um, so he came to believe that the big trusts were here to stay, and that what needed to happen was that the government needed to basically accept that there were going to be monopolies, but take a much stronger hand in regulating them, in basically. Um, writing the rules so that the companies weren't writing the rules, so that they were、um, not abusing their power. William Howard Taft, on the other hand, ran in the 1912 election as a trust-busting champion. Basically, said, "I want to continue doing what I'm doing, and we just need to break up these these big trusts." And he really saw it as necessary, basically, to save capitalism. Right? He thought that if We didn't break up these large corporations. Then there was going to be this kind of inevitable slide toward toward socialism, because of course what Roosevelt was talking about would mean much greater government, quote unquote, interference in in the private sector. And then you had Eugene Debs, who was you know the actual socialist, and、um, he also didn't believe that trust busting was the way to go. You know, as a as a socialist, he believed that、uh, this kind of move toward 
concentration of industry was part of this kind of natural progression and that workers in the trusts needed to organize and um, take over and basically you know, the, the trusts needed to be not just regulated, not even just nationalized, but socialized so that they were run by the workers for, for the common good. So he brought this kind of socialist perspective to the race. And then finally, Woodrow Wilson, who was the Democrat, um, you know, his attitude to the trusts was a little bit like Taft's. He was a proponent of stronger antitrust enforcement. And he also believed in regulation, but not quite as, as uh, heavy handed regulation as Roosevelt was proposing. Hmm. So you had this kind of range where, on the one hand, you had aggressive trust busting and antitrust law and enforcement um, as the answer to the big trust. And then on the other extreme, kind of accepting that you were going to have concentrated monopoly power and just that that needed to be regulated or even you know, publicly controlled so that it didn't have these bad effects. And Wilson wins. Um, yes, but only with forty-two percent of the vote. So it's sort of the American people chose the middle way, but not resoundingly. It's a bit, very like a very sort of tepid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you know, again, in some ways, the similarities um, mm, in all yeah. of their positions are just as important as the distinctions. And so at that time, you know, this is in the progressive era, and you have muckraking journalists doing exposés of the big trusts, uh, the, the most notice, notable being Ida Tarbell's series on Standard Oil. Um, mm-hmm. And so you have this real groundswell of public opinion that something needs to be done. However, you know, at this point, because there is this really strong public sentiment and movement to tackle the problem of the trusts, big business realizes that they can't fight it. And so they decide, well, instead, we should help to, to shape this new regime. And so another thing that happened in 1912 was that the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce was founded. And so by the 1920s, business was kind of getting what they wanted. And the uh, Supreme Court began to take a little bit more of a um, flexible view of, of antitrust law and began to rule that some restraints of trade were allowable as long as they weren't intended to re- to restrict competition. I think if 1912 is sort of the analog to what we're going through now to a certain degree culturally, the, the Reagan era and its approach to uh, antitrust is formative to where we are right now. Can you explain how uh, the approach to antitrust in the 70s and 80s really got us into this pickle that we're in right now? Um, Yeah, in in the decades following World War II, there was uh, very active antitrust enforcement and a lot of blocking of mergers, even when those mergers would have resulted in a relatively small market share, even as low as like 5 or 10%. And there was a sense that antitrust really was about tackling what Louis Brandeis, one of the the early champions of, of antitrust, called the curse of bigness, right? And mm. the idea that just having corporations get to this size and, and this level of dominance was just a bad thing in and of itself. And in part because of how it reduced opportunities for other businesses, for entrepreneurs to grow up, and how it disadvantaged smaller competitors. And so there was a sense that it was just a good thing to preserve competition among a large number of smaller businesses. Um, And so that was kind of the the thrust of it in those post-war years. And then, of course, in the 1970s, everything changed. 
And that was a decade of economic crisis. That was a decade where, you know, in response to kind of a crisis of profitability for U.S. industry, where there was uh, increasing competition from foreign companies, where, you know, relatively high wages and labor standards in the U.S. and regulations, et cetera, were um, kind of cramping corporation style. And so there was this kind of effort on the part of U.S. industry and, and corresponding industries in other countries to kind of break out of these national confines, you know, break the unions, roll back the regulations. And this was really kind of the beginning of the era of globalization. Mm. And the kind of ideological part of that movement, which many people today call neoliberalism, proclaimed anew the virtues of the free market and drew a lot from the Chicago School of Economics that had grown up earlier in the century, but became kind of this dominant ideology moving into the 70s and beyond. And the person who was very influential in bringing this outlook to antitrust was uh, the legal scholar Robert Bork. Um, And he wrote a very influential book in the late 70s called The Antitrust Paradox, and basically laid out the case that antitrust should just be about consumer welfare and a very narrow conception of consumer welfare that really focused on prices. So the government should only be involved in trying to in trying to break up large companies or restrict their behavior in cases where it could be demonstrated that they were raising prices for consumers. So this right. was a very a very narrow conception of what antitrust was about and it was also a very high level of kind of proof required, right? Because how do you demonstrate that prices would be lower if there was more competition, right? So it was a very high standard of proof. And so what happened, the, this, the Supreme Court basically adopted Bork's analysis and Ronald Reagan, the, the Justice Department under Reagan, kind of officially adopted that analysis. And so that kind of opened the way for a couple of decades where there were just mergers and acquisitions up the wazoo, right? So a new kind of era of capital concentration. And of course, again, globalization where companies were becoming truly multinational. Yeah. So that, and then that also kind of opened the way for the rise of big tech. And big tech was kind of uniquely suited to this narrow interpretation of antitrust, right? Because you have, you know, Facebook and Google and the products or services that they're offering to the individual consumer, they're basically offering for free. Like, here's your Gmail account. Here's your search engine. Here's your social network. Um, You don't have to pay for those things. So how are you going to pin an antitrust charge on companies that give give things away for free? Um, And then Amazon, of course, is, you know, has built this empire on offering products at the lowest prices, obsessing over the customer, right? So again, it's going to be really hard on the basis of this narrow idea of consumer welfare to pin antitrust charges on these big tech companies. So big tech has kind of grown up in this environment where they're able to get around antitrust very easily. um, But at the same time, they're building what is quite clearly monopoly power in this new digital economy where each one of these big four tech companies controls kind of a a critical piece of the infrastructure and has the power to really write the rules and set the terms of interactions with, you know, businesses that are using their platforms, with smaller competitors, with workers, with consumers, et cetera. So they have a huge amount of power 
And that's really amplified too by just the new world of big data, right? And that's one of the things that I think makes this era really qualitatively different from previous eras of you know, big corporate power, just the extent to which these companies are able to compile these just exhaustive dossiers on individuals, on businesses, and are able to use that information to really cement their dominance. So I, I don't necessarily want to get into the particulars of um, the cases right now. You know, we've we've talked about that on the show before. Um, I you know I, I think that what you're really helping me do is is understand maybe how things are changing just in the larger application of this tool that the government has wielded for a century and a half in many different ways, and. Um, you know, pretty much we've seen the Robert Bork's interpretation apply over the last 50 years or so. And it is only in the last few years, I'd say since the 2016 election, that we're seeing a sea change. I had Margaret O'Mara on this summer and she said, chapters in history books will begin and end with 2020. Like that's one thing that we definitely know. And antitrust, I think, is one of those things. And so looking at all this history that you have, thinking about where we're at now, what are the the hallmarks of this new approach to antitrust, even if it's nascent? Give us give us yeah. some sort of shape of where we're going. Well, I mean, I think the the kind of progressive left wing of the new attitude toward antitrust really wants to move kind of back toward this more expansive vision of what antitrust is about so that we're taking into account not only kind of demonstrable impacts on prices and consumers, but more broadly uh, impacts on uh, you know, other businesses, potential competitors, entrepreneurs, workers, consumers in a big sense, and also just on our kind of political system and democracy. So really a, a kind of... Um, big view of of what antitrust is about and whose interests we should we should care about. Now that big kind of progressive vision isn't necessarily what's going to happen right off the bat. Um, I think you know the House committee, House Judiciary Committee antitrust subcommittee report that came out in October um, has some fairly sweeping regulations and that's a report that um, is endorsed by like the Democratic members of that committee. And those recommendations, you know, run the gamut from breaking up big tech companies to, uh, you know, regulating the platforms so that the government is writing some of the rules rather than letting, you know, Amazon and, and Google write their own rules. But, you know, some of these measures do have, it seems, bipartisan support. So the, the kind of thing that might move forward fairly quickly, um, even if we have a divided Congress I mean, they're kind of the more boring recommendations, as you might expect. So like having mm-hmm. greater interoperability of platforms so that, you know, a, a business or a person who's using one platform, it's easier to like port their data over to another so that you're not just stuck with the first one or, or whatever. Um, and also things like making mergers and acquisitions more difficult. So just kind of raising the standards for that. Yeah. Um, so that kind of thing, I think, could happen fairly quickly. And then, of course, we're seeing already these new lawsuits, right, against Google and Facebook. And I would be very unsurprised if, if we get a, an Amazon lawsuit um, coming up as well. So it's hard to say. I mean, those will probably take a long time and it's hard to say exactly what will happen. But, 
you could imagine them being broken up, right? Uh, Facebook and Instagram being separated. In the case of Amazon, you could imagine their Amazon's marketplace being separated from Amazon Web Services, potentially right. being separated from their fulfillment services. Um, what the impacts of those changes would be, um, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, you so we haven't really talked about Amazon here. And I think that it would be instructive to ask you about Amazon in particular. And, the, you know, the thing about the free market is that it is um, it does have a natural end. Right. I mean, there has always been this understanding that it's that it's something that um, that that needs to be tended. Um, if the government isn't tending it, then these big companies are tending it. If the current fever for antitrust passes and there are superficial regulations, but nothing that is substantial, like that there there aren't uh, breakups ordered or anything like that, what does the f- future of the marketplace and our culture look like? Well, I mean, for for one thing, I, I think the, the reason why I wanted to focus on Amazon in this series in part is, well, twofold. I mean, one and most obviously because Amazon's right here in our own backyard and the future of Amazon in a lot of ways is the future of our region. But I think also Amazon is unique among the big four tech companies in this kind of scope of its ambition. Um, Amazon is, I'm not even sure it's correct to call it a tech company um, just because it is involved at this point in so many industries. And I can't think of an industry that I cannot imagine Amazon trying to enter, right? Amazon is more at this point a way of doing business than it is um, any particular kind of business. What's wrong with that? I mean, you talked earlier about um, about how there are some aspects, there are some businesses where you want a monopoly. You know, having a lot of different entities just creates chaos and slows things down. And what if the marketplace is such an entity? I think there's a good argument for several parts of Amazon's business, including their third-party seller marketplace and probably including Amazon Web Services, to be thought of almost as a public utility, right? So Amazon's marketplace probably half of all purchases online are made through Amazon's marketplace. Like that's enormous. It means that as a customer, when you're going online to look for something to buy, it makes sense to go there because that's where all the stuff is and you can search for it and you can read reviews on it. Um, And it means that as a business trying to sell things online, you gotta be selling there because that's where all the customers are, right? And so that's an example of what's called a network effect where something becomes more useful the more people are using it. And so there's this kind of natural gravitational pull where something like Amazon's marketplace, I mean, Facebook is another example, just becomes the one place where everyone goes for something. And so in a situation like that, it's it's not clear that we would all be better served if there were like 10 different places online where you could go and buy things because then as a business trying to sell online, you'd have to post your things in 10 different places. And as a customer, you have to go and look in 10 different places. So to some extent, it could make sense for there to be just one marketplace online where you go and you get everything. 
But if that's the case, then we're all really dependent on whoever's running that marketplace and writing the rules for that marketplace. And right now that's Amazon. Mm -hmm. So if we accept that that's kind of a natural monopoly and that it actually makes sense just to have one really good marketplace rather than a dozen marketplaces competing with each other, then the answer is to to regulate it, right? For the government to write the rules of how it works, or even at some point for the government to run it or, you know, for it to be publicly operated rather than having Amazon do it for its own profit. Right. Um, so that's an example. I think, yeah, again, Amazon Web Services might be another one where it makes sense to basically accept that there's going to be this one dominant player and just try to make sure that it's not abusing its power. All right. That's Katie Wilson. You can read her column every week at CrossCut on Wednesdays. And if you'd like to read this entire series on antitrust, go to crosscut.com slash antitrust or crosscut.com slash antitrust, whichever one you prefer. (laughs) Katie, thanks so much for coming on the show this week. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Katie for coming on the show this week. The episode was engineered by Resty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten, and this is where I usually tell you that we'll be back next week with another episode, but we won't. We're going to take a bit of a break, but we will be back with new episodes in the new year. Thanks for listening.